pronounce your name correctly for me? So it's Carlo Savo. I am a, uh, what I like to call a recovering auctioneer. (laughs) Probably legitimate from what I understand. (laughs) Yeah. I literally grew up in the business. My father started back in the 80s and he was doing back then mostly commercial. He would do things like JCPenney's catalog returns because back then they would just store them in a warehouse because they weren't allowed to put them back out in the store. So we would get tractor trailer loads of that kind of stuff, excess building materials from, you know, job sites, all perfectly usable stuff, just stuff that wasn't put in the retail end of it. And then he would do bankruptcies. He did a lot of restaurants and things like that. And as that sort of faded away and got more controlled by the attorneys and the banks that were involved, it was harder to kind of be in that business. He had a little break for a while. And then we got back into the antiques and art end of it, as well as coins, firearms, and a little bit of real estate we would do. I became a fully licensed auctioneer in 2000. I did it for 16 years as a full-time professional. And in Pennsylvania, you have to be licensed by the state. So you have to serve a two-year apprenticeship. I think they have a school now. But uh, when I did it, you had to serve a two-year apprenticeship, then take a state board, believe it or not, and then you're licensed and bonded by the state. I find it so funny that you have to do all that just to be able to sell something. Whereas I I could buy a gun in two, what, 24 hours at Walmart. Oh, when we had a firearms license through the business, and as long as you passed your background check, you could buy a gun in an hour. Yeah, I always wonder whether I would actually pass that background check. <laughs> it's It can be interesting. We had a gentleman buying an antique revolver once, and it was purely just an antique piece. It was going to go in a showcase somewhere. It was a very old Colt. And he had all the proper paperwork and licensing and all that nonsense. We're filling out the paperwork, and it came back, and the state police, because all the background checks go through the state police and PA, were like, nah, he can't have it. And they don't tell us why. And it's like... Okay. Well, that's the question. Yeah. It's like, w- is there something from my past that has made it so that I potentially could not? Don't get me wrong. I do not want to, but yeah. I kind of just want to know if I would qualify. <laughs> this <laughs> while the, the poor guy, this wound up being, he wound up clearing it up, but it, he found out it was uh, disorderly conduct back when he was 16 years old. And this guy was about 60. And I was like, seriously, that was still on your record? <laughs> Oh, well, then I'm screwed because I, I was I was under investigation by the DEA. So, oh, well, that's not. Yeah, that you probably have some issues. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. I have no interest in buying a firearms. But interestingly enough, you were also on a Nat Geo television show. Right. We have that. So in common, was don't I. We? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So was I. <laughs> you so. Now, did someone in the Emirates produce it or was it produced directly by Nat Geo? No, ours was a, a a secondary company that produced it and basically sold it to Nat Geo. That's what we did. We Ours was through Cosgrove Muir, who were the uh, people who did Unsolved Mysteries, or still doing Unsolved Mysteries. They found us and approached us about making a TV show. This was in 2010. We were like, yeah, sounds interesting. Let's do it. We were a small company. We were not a big company. And as a matter of fact, the year they grabbed us to do the show, we were about ready to call it quits. After the financial hit in 2008, when everything went to hell, the auction business, especially the arena we were in, and things weren't so great. And we were touring with the idea of like, I, you know, how much longer are we going to do this? This has been really, really rough. And they came just at a time when it sort of, it really helped us, you know, it uh, helped 
saved the business. And and we had several very good years after this show had aired. We only wound up doing three one-hour episodes because by the time we started filming the show and the time it aired, one of the higher-ups changed. And by the time they got, they saw our project and they were like, yeah, we're not going to do this. So... <laughs> Well, don't worry. I mean, I did a whole season of mine, but it was so low budget that it's kind of embarrassing. I mean, the on location stuff was really beautiful and lovely. No problems with that. But our set that they built for us. Oh, my God. I had better sets like in my college dorm. It was <laughs> so bad. And it was really embarrassing. What's really what, what sort of upset me later is they they did a season two of it. And they built the most beautiful set for it. I mean, it's gorgeous. And I'm like, God damn it. Why couldn't I have been on that season? It was sort of the same thing. It was us. It was like two years later, we got a brand new building. We really upgraded everything because we were able to just, from publicity, take the business to the next step. And it really helped us out. And I was like, why, you know, why couldn't they have filmed us when we were here? <laughs> you know, everything, you know, said we were on our last leg when they were filming. And because well, um, nobody wants to see the story of somebody succeeding. They want yeah. to see the story of somebody struggling. Yeah. Well, like they got the story. I think one of the other reasons we probably didn't last with them is we were kind of difficult. It was a family business. My father, my brother, we were all partners. It was at the time when the motorcycle guys were on the air and they were big, uh, what was it? Orange County choppers, or I think it was, and they were that family that, you know, was the father and son and they were constantly like button heads. Oh yeah, they were. And they thought we were going to be that way. And it's like, hmm. yeah, we could be that way, but I, we're not going to do it in front of a camera. <laughs> I know. Like, don't get me wrong. Like the Nat Geo TV show I was on was a, a competition show. So like, yeah. there's no like, actual real personalities yeah. in it kind of thing. I mean maybe the contestants did all that but I don't know because they did it all in Arabic so I have absolutely no idea what they said as far as the judges my role in it like it was just I came in I judged I walked away you know I mentored whatever and I left luckily I did not have to bear my demons on, on television yeah they, I, they were looking for a lot of that kind of stuff and we were just weren't those kind of people it was an interesting lesson of what reality TV really is, because I can't tell you how many times it was like, well, say it this way. Well, let's do it again. But say this. It's like, I would I would never say that. Like, why would I say that? It's like, you know, they actually or, did that. Oh, all the time. Yeah. All the time. It was. I had no idea. Yeah. Let's do it again. Or, you know, let me get it from this angle. And, and you know, when you come in, why don't you comment about this when you come in? It's like, ugh, can't can't we just like be the people that we're, we normally are. And they did catch a lot of us as we were, but it was amazing how many suggestions would be made while you were filming. And I think that's one of the reasons, like I said, it didn't work out so well because we, we didn't take direction very well. <laughs> But it's, yeah, I mean, it's, I understand that from a production standpoint because, I mean, they're burning time and burning money when they're waiting for something interesting to happen. And that just, that's not the way they want to work. They want to try and get it fast and quick and cheap. And so they, they want to create things. But I, I, you know, almost all those like quote unquote like reality things, like I feel like if they just spent enough time there, they probably would catch some crazy, stupid shit, but they just don't want to put that time in. And the auction business is such a strange business. You meet such strange people, interesting yeah. people, people from every single walk of life. I've met every kind of buyer and I've talked to people all over the world. You know, we would always try to tell them, you know, it's the people. The people are what are interesting. The buyers, the sellers, that's where the stories are. The stuff is the stuff. Almost everything we sold, you could find anywhere. You know, we got some interesting things once in a while that, you know, were pretty unique. But on any auction house anywhere in America, 
everybody's kind of selling the same type of stuff, you know, just varying degrees of value, I guess. I think that the interesting part of it is the relationship between the who the person is and the stuff. So, like, why do they give a shit enough to either own and or want to own that thing that's possibly not very special? And what makes that relationship between the object and the person, potentially crazy person, very unique? <laughs> yeah, collectors are an interesting group of people. And there's a couple different types. You get the people who collect because they think they're making some kind of investment and that they're going to cash in later on. Most of those people wind up losing money. You got to be exceptionally savvy and understand markets and understand how things work in the future in order to make that kind of investment and cash in later on. There's a few things that hold and will always be worth more. Coins are a good one because at the very worst, you have the precious metal value of a coin. Or if it's U.S. currency, it's always going to be worth whatever the United States government says it's worth. So, you know. That might change now with all this new digital stuff, but, you know, but yes. at least if you have buying precious metal, you have precious metal. You know, firearms were fairly stable, collectible, but these people that got into things like Hummels, you know, collector plates, all this type of fad stuff, you try to explain to people as a professional, it's like, look, you're getting into collecting. That's great. Collect the things you like. Put it in your house because you really like it. And if you make money when you go to sell it, great. I know people who had literal warehouses filled with things they thought were going to be valuable and they were going to retire. They now have garbage bills. Roseville was one. I knew someone who collected Roseville, which was an art pottery from Ohio, who was very, very collectible from the 80s into the late 90s. And the prices kept going up and up and up and up and up. And then probably the mid-aughts, the collectors just went away. Everybody went like, eh, we don't like it anymore. And the price just went from you know, a vase that was three, four hundred, five hundred dollars went down to ten bucks. What's interesting? I've been watching a lot of those kind of like reality shows. You know, American Pickers, Pawn Stars, all those yeah. kind of crap. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they have they have their own problems. I know, but yeah. but nonetheless, like I've been watching, and it is interesting to think about like that. Not only is it certain things are collectible and certain things are valuable and all this kind of stuff, but there's also the fact that like the people who are collecting a lot of these things, even in art. So, I mean, you know, because this is an art podcast, but like even in art, as the collectors get older, like a lot of them, the the interest in some of the, these art things that are doing very well will fall off also because like a generation will end of people who appreciated, let's say, that particular time period in art or that medium or whatever. And it'll take another, you know, 10, 15 years for like another generation to come in. And so there's this, this constant wave of sort of collecting and not, you know, interest and not interest and collection, not collection of everything. Yeah. And you see that mostly in that sort of middle range of collecting. You know, the very high-end museum-type pieces retain their value. That's because, A, they're desirable, and there's also a lot of manipulation on that end of the market, and we can get into that. But in Please that middle... Do. Yeah. In that middle of the road, you know, it fluctuates because, you know, it's in and out of favor. And that's probably the most open part of the market. That's sort of between you know, the $100 collectible, I'd say all the way up to maybe about 5000 is a range where it's it's going to fluctuate. It's going to be all over the place. That stuff's going to come into fashion, out of fashion. You know, at the low end, nobody cares anyway. If you're buying little trinkety stuff because you like little trinkety stuff for your house, nobody cares if one day it's worth a dollar and the next day it's worth 20 it, it doesn't matter. You get in that middle of the road, 
but that's a huge return on investment. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if you got hundreds of them, it's a huge return on investment. But if you have hundreds of them, they're not as valuable. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Scarcity could be a, a strange thing. The market gets so manipulated. You don't say. Auctions are supposed to be the definition a lot of people use or that we use professionally would be that the auction is designed to get the highest and best price, which is true. The other half of it is the highest and best price on that day with that audience, with that thing. All of that has an impact of what the price is going to be. And if you let it just be that way with no controls, no manipulation of any kind, prices will be all over the place for a lot of different items. And we used to see it with stuff, stuff that nobody really was worried about what it was going to bring. You know, one day it brought a hundred bucks. The next day it brought 500 bucks. I don't know why there was a change. There was two people there that wanted it more. That happens at an auction. And if you talk to any auctioneer, you can get to be honest about it. That's part of the business. But there's a lot of things auction companies use to manipulate that. You know, there's the whole reserves is one of the first things we do. So if somebody has an item that they want a particular amount of money out of, they're going to say, you can't sell it for less than this price. And you can agree to that as an auctioneer, or you could turn to them and say, you're completely out of your mind. It's never going to bring that kind of money. And you just don't put it up. So a lot of auction houses from the highest end to the lowest end do work with reserves. They can manipulate the scarcity of an item. There was an instance about 10 years ago now, where a gentleman... I think somewhere out west, found in in his grandfather's attic. I might be getting some of these uh, details wrong, but this is the gist of the story. He found in an attic an entire shoebox filled with tobacco cards. Now, tobacco cards were the earliest form of the sports cards that were literally in the back of cigarette packs back in the early 20th century. I know. I watch Pawn Stars. Yeah. So there's a couple that are extremely valuable. Honus Wagner being one, that's the most valuable. It's a specific card, but that's the most valuable baseball card I think there is. Uh, It was Honus Wagner, Ty Cobb, and a couple of the other really big names from that era. And it was a literal shoebox filled with these cards, and they were all perfect. Well, he thought he he hit the gold mine. Like, I mean, there's, I mean, a perfect Honus Wagner, I think, is worth over a million dollars. I've been out of the market a little bit, so that might be way more now. It doesn't fluctuate that much. Yeah, it it, it might be a lot more. It's definitely not less. Uh, <laughs> but so he took it to one of the bigger auction companies in the in the country. I won't say anybody's name because I don't want any phone calls. <laughs> no, wait, here. I want you to say it, and I promise you I will bleep it out. I, it's, it, I, because I it, enjoy doing the bleep thing. It's it was, a fun sound effect to put in. It was all public anyway, so I'm really just I'm being dramatic. Uh, it was... Uh, and so he took it to them because they have a reputation for comic books and memorabilia and that thing. And kind of got a look at him. We're like, we can't put these up. And I said, what do you mean you can't? Like, I want to sell them. We can't put them all up at once. And the reason being is the reason a Honus Wagner is worth so much money is because there's literally a handful of them in the world that are perfect. You can't go from having five perfect ones, just to use a number, and then all of a sudden put 10 more in the market and expect everything to be the, worth the same. So they'll manipulate the scarcity of these items, like put one up every year or try to sell them privately or, or whatever it is they have to do to control the price of the ones that are already out there, you know. Okay, wait, just to be clear, though, you're saying what they do. 
did you ever do this? We weren't really selling at a level where we had to do something like that. We were usually very happy to get something that was that high end. We would work with reserve if we felt it merited it. If you had a lot of something, it was generally a part of a big collection anyway. Our philosophy was when you had a large collection, you had multiples of one item. It was just, it was better for everybody. It was going to draw more attention. More people were going to show up. And it usually worked out in our favor. There were a lot of auctioneers who was like, well, you can't put all of those up at once. Whatever the item was you were discussing, it'll affect the price. We never found it to work out that way. It's an interesting dilemma. I mean, like, let's say, you know, because I'm going to try and keep this with art. So let's say like you have like an, a collector that comes and says, hey, I have five Andy Warhols. And, and you're like, well, if you put up one at a time, you're right. You, you might get more for each one individually. But if you put up all five in a single auction, you're going to draw more buyers who then might be willing to pay more. So like, you know, the volume of the stuff in the auction would be a tr- more attractive for more people to want to be there. Yeah, we always find like, the collectors. Are, I mean, what would you rather, especially if you were traveling, you know, at that time? Most of it's done on the internet now, but if you're going to travel to an auction, I'd want to go to a place where I have a chance, you know, there's there's enough of things that I have a chance of walking out with something rather than try and go and fight over one item, unless that item was extremely special, which was rare. Auction houses use a lot of different techniques to try to to manage the prices, you know, and the biggest guys are the masters at it. One of the weird things that they do that makes me insane, especially at the highest level, is, you know, like Sotheby's and Christie's don't charge a commission to the seller. They will use that as leverage to get the best stuff. If you're just an average Joe with average Joe stuff, you know, what's average to them, you know, you're going to get probably nailed a seller's fee and an advertising fee and a this fee and a that fee. But if you got a, a house full of Monet's, you're not going to be charged any kind of commission. Well, it's an interesting thing because, like, I always wonder how the auction houses make enough money to do what they do because i mean not only do they do what they do you know so well and so manipulatively and all this kind of stuff but they also do it under such a shroud of secrecy because the only people that have any sense of how it works quite honestly are probably the people working at the place maybe a collector or a seller that has engaged with them a lot and kind of like sold and bought a lot might know some but it's so shrouded that it sort of bothers me because there's always the question of like, okay, so this piece goes up for auction. Why has it been valued at this? Who the fuck that said that that's that, that price worth that much? When you're dealing with normal day-to-day stuff like, you know, estates and things like that, a good auctioneer should value items based on what they've gotten for that same or similar item in the past. You're just kind of taking an average in your mind. But it always came with the caveat, like, first of all, what condition is yours in? Is it the right color? Is it popular right now and a a slew of other things that are going to go into it. But you make your best guess. On the higher end of it, when you're selling something, you know, like a Monet for $40 million, you know, it's one of his water lilies or something. You've already taken out most people in the world because a lot of people are very wealthy, but to come up with 40 million cash to pay for something, that's a whole different kind of money. You know, so it's generally corporations that wind up buying these things. And they're buying it based on the idea, and some of this is my opinion and some of this is fact, they're buying it with the idea that when they go to sell it, they're going to make more money. They generally don't 
buy it to well they don't buy it to lose money that's for sure <laughs> well co- co- oftentimes corporations are buying art because it's a tax write-off when they take a, a, a corporate profit and turn around and purchase art it ends up being tax deductible for them f- for that year it's not so much even a, a tax deduction because i mean you still have to pay for the item as it is a way to put cash into an asset it's the same thing they do with real estate. It's a place to put cash. Cash can fluctuate. You know, it's it's they can't ship pallets of cash to a free port and hide it there. But I could buy a painting and send they it there. They might be able to. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't spoken to a free port person yet, yeah. but it is possible. There are just pallets of cash in there as well. I would imagine pallets of, of precious metals for sure. Golds, platinums, that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm sure it's somebody's got it. I'm sure it's stockpiled somewhere. It's something that's starting to happen now too with the change in tastes. Uh, I, where was it I was reading that some of the auction houses now are getting a little upset that Banksy is selling so well at auction and there's a craze for his type of work. And some of the stuff that used to be that everybody was nuts for modern, postmodern art, interest is starting to wane. You know, well, that becomes a problem when you've built your business around selling those types of pieces. Well, that's what I was saying about like the generation of people sort of aging out of buying more works and stuff. And so like even at, on the – I consider like auction as like the secondary market. So like even on the secondary market, there's the same ebbs and flows of, mm-hmm. of collectors and interest and stuff like that that there is in the primary market in the arts. Believe it or not, profit margins are thin for an auction house. It seems oh, no, like – I knew that. It seems like they're making millions upon millions upon millions, but – it's the, the amount of money it costs to run an auction house. And then if you're not taking a commission from the seller, you're only taking it from the buyer, what they call the buyer's premium, you're losing money. And that's the one thing that drives me crazy about that. It's like, okay, I get the tactic. I get you want to get the best stuff. And so you'll say to the seller, look, we won't take anything from you. Well, you, you just give us the stuff, we'll sell it. And all the money will come from the buyer when they buy it. But it's saying to the seller, what we do for you isn't worth anything. Well, but what I don't understand, okay, so like those those fees and premiums and all this kind of stuff, why are they always added on secretly after the auction or all this kind of stuff? Like, why? I, what I don't understand is why isn't it just included in the price? Like, if I say I'm going to buy this for one million dollars, then you take the the your fees out of that one million dollars, mm-hmm. not add on an additional fee to that one million dollars. Well, if you were taking from the seller, what you would do is, and this is how we operated. You'd sell for the seller. You get a percentage of whatever that sold for. And then from the buyer's side, you would add on a percentage, which is all up front. You know it right going into it, how much you're going to pay and what's called the buyer's premium. I think ours was 13% from the buyer. Plus then your sales tax, whatever state you were in, you had to add on their sales tax. So all of that was totally up front. And Chrissy's and Sotheby's and Bonham's and Phillips and all those people, they the people buying know exactly what the buyer's premium is. Theirs is astronomical. I think it's almost... Sotheby's is 27% might be, might be closer to 30 now because that's the only way they make a commission. Again, I just find that utterly ridiculous. Like, I mean, that's like me going into the grocery store and saying, here's the thing of milk that's $2. Okay. But when I take it to the register, no, no, it's $2 and 60 cents. Right. Because there's a buyer's premium Premium, on buying this milk. Like, what the fuck is that? Like, that that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world other than auctions, which is a completely fictitiously made-up thing to try and just do this. Like, I don't understand why they don't just, like, build the prices all in and make it all sort of clearer and more 
transparent. I mean, that's that's my my fundamental problem is the lack of transparency. It's <laughs> the auction business can be a bit opaque. I can, I, I'll give you that, especially if you're an outsider to it. I mean, Which I, I am with, <laughs> on our end of it. When we were when I was an auctioneer, and we were collecting the 13 percent buyer's premium. It covered a lot of costs on our end, uh, just administrative costs and things like that. And then you had, you know, the profit from the seller, too, because the overhead is just ridiculous between all the licensing fees and, and insurances and rents. And it's just expense, 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 expense. Get me wrong. We made money. We, you know, we ran a business. So it's something that helps defer some of the cost. It shouldn't be the way you make all your money, in my opinion. People who buy from the higher end companies are very frustrated by that because you're paying 50, 60, 100 million for something, which are some of the prices they're getting for a lot of these items now. And then you got to add another 27% on top of that and whatever relevant taxes there are at the time it's sold. It's like, <laughs> you know, it becomes an astronomical fee. And I wonder too, if it's hurting the selling price on some of these items too. I mean, some buyers don't think about it and they just pay when they get their bill. And then some people go, well, now I'm going to have to pay another, you know, 30%, this and that, and, you know, so I'm not going to be willing to go as high as I was going to go. And it's less money in the seller's pocket at the end of the day. There's been a lot of back and forth in the industry, you know, over whether or not a, a buyer's premium should be charged. I think just about everybody does it now, um, except for maybe some of the smaller companies don't charge any buyer's premium which I don't know if it's helping them or hurting them at this point, honestly, to just totally forget about the buyer's premium. Again, I go back to my milk example. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, it's rough on the buyer. And even at the highest end of spending, most of the stuff being bought is going into dealer hands. You know, a lot of the stuff purchased at auction isn't going into the private collector. You know, the super very, very special stuff is, but a lot of this, just not that many, what we call end users to get every single item into the hands of a collector. You know, there has to be somebody to sort of clean up the bulk stuff. That's good and brings money, but it's just not going into the hands of a collector that day. You know, it's it's not just seller, auctioneer, collector. There's a whole network of people involved in the business. You know, in the really old days when my father was doing it, and I was really young before the internet, it was almost like a hierarchy. There was the local auction that was taking everything out of estates and some dealer would scoop something up and then it would go to his guy that buys that stuff. And then that guy, maybe there was another guy in between where that either operated in a, in a city where they could get a little more for it or they were really close with the collectors that bought that type of items. So there was a hierarchy. This guy paid this much, then this guy could sell it for this much, and then the next guy sold it to that, and then eventually it wound up in the hands of a collector. I thought that's how it works. Yeah. And <laughs> you well, just the internet, explained what I assumed. It, 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 well, not everybody knows about this stuff. <laughs> but, I am just, I know not just enough to be dangerous. That's all. So go on. The internet sort of took some of those steps out when eBay became really hot. The average person can go to an auction and grab. I mean, there was a time when you could literally sell anything on eBay. I mean, people were getting $300 for toasters that were sitting up in their attics just because they were shiny. And it was, <laughs> and it was great because we would clear out entire houses. I mean, you would just take the dust and you could sell all of it. And at the end of the day, everybody was smiles because they were going to make money. You made money. The seller couldn't believe you took all that stuff and they made money. And 
then as it all started to calm down, everybody realized I just spent $300 on a chrome toaster that probably doesn't work or is going to explode because the wiring's no good, you know. And they also started to realize stuff they thought was rare wasn't that rare, you know. It is an issue that the internet created because like prior to the internet, we all thought the things that basically we saw that we had never seen anywhere else in our lives were like, oh my gosh, this is incredibly rare. Nobody has this. I haven't seen anybody who has this. And then suddenly the internet opens up and you're like, oh, they're fucking everywhere. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> they're just not in my neighborhood, but they're everywhere. It's like, oh, look, there's a hundred of them on eBay right now. I could buy anyone I want in various conditions. And yeah. that killed a lot of the market. And that's when things started to really change. And we had to start getting much pickier about the types of items we put through sales. And a lot of the auction houses began to specialize or to put together, you know, different types of sales. And a lot of the, and since I, I, my brother and I quit in 2016. And since then, a lot of the smaller companies have either been purchased by other mid-sized companies or just are completely out of business. Because it's, it got to a point where what you could sell at a live auction was just such a select group of things that you'd have to go into somebody's house and look and say, I'll take this, these 12 things, the rest of it, you're just either going to have to do something with yourself or throw it out. And people look at you like you were insane. Like, are you telling me everything in this house now is a liability? It's like, just, yeah. You know, again, that, that's exactly <laughs> how I thought it went that you pretty much like went in and cherry picked, like, I believe we can get a good price for that there and this there and everything else is your responsibility. <laughs> that's how they do it. You know, at the highest level, where it's like, look, we can sell these. These will go in our cataloged sale. Some of the bigger guys do have their average stuff too because they can't refuse everything. Just because it's not worth a million doesn't mean they don't want to sell it. It just has to go in a different type of sale. I mean, there was a time when the auction industry was whatever, it's the whole house, we'll take everything out of the house, we'll, everything will sell. It, you know, it's going to be a wide range of prices, but you'll have an empty house at the end of the day. You know, and this was for high-end estates to low-end estates. And everybody's going to get a piece of the action. It slowly started to evolve into, on every level, like, there's just certain things people don't want. They just, it just, it changed. The whole thing changed. And it, it made it very difficult to do business. And it, and it got to a point where we just got tired of going into people's houses. It was usually dealing with someone had just passed. It was a father, a mother, a grandparent or something. So everybody's already upset. And then you got to go in and say, look, the console television and this and that thing. It's like, guys, it just has to go in the garbage. You know, we could sell these couple of things. They'd look at you and now they're furious because it's like now we got to pay someone to remove these items instead of you sell it for us and we get money it's sorry you know well it is a bit arrogant to believe that everything in your house is valuable though too but it didn't help when they started running these tv shows too like the road show and everything because look the average person can't tell the difference between a high-end piece of glassware and something their grandparent bought at walmart it just if you're not used to it Sometimes, because sometimes those things is you that see, true? People people can't tell the oh, difference. People have no, they have no idea. I okay. I, I'll, I'll give you an example. I I come from a very privileged background. Well, not very privileged, but a privileged access. Let's say so. Like I was around a lot of rich people, and so like I can tell the difference. So and so you see those things, but when you grow up in an area where the history is coal mining, and most people were blue collar, 
And it's not that they don't have good things or things that are of value. It's not the same type of thing that they're seeing on TV. I mean, I had somebody come in the gallery once. They literally threw six watches on a table in front of me. He goes, is this crap worth anything? And I looked at it, Every one of them was a Rolex. And I said, yeah, we'd be happy to sell these for you, you know? And we did the paperwork. At the end of the day, I forget what his check was for, 20000 or something. For And boy, I wish I had them now. They're about tripled in value. I was going to say, how did, how did this person come into to possession of five Rolexes? They were his uncles. He was cleaning out his uncle's estate. And he kept doing this. He kept bringing us stuff. Like, are these worth anything? Are these? He brought us a box. It was a big box filled with original Betty Page photos from the days when you sent away and they mailed you the, the photos. He had a, a huge collection of them. And uh, we sold them all as one collection. And people, that was just when I think the movie had come out. So she was super popular. It was amazing. Everything he brought us, he thought was complete junk. And he wound up with thousands of dollars at the end of the day. And then you get the other end of it where somebody comes in with a lamp that, you know, has a glass shade with fruit on it. And they go, this is a Tiffany, right? You know, no, it's a touch lamp from 1980. Yeah, you know, it's like, well, no, but it looks like a Tiffany. Looks like and is are not the same thing, you know. And they, you know, I saw it on the road show. I saw it on the road show. I saw it. It's like, no, you don't understand. Did you did you listen when they told you the history of that item and you know, like where it did came you listen from? when it said it must be signed with the name Tiffany on it? Yeah, you know. Well, they didn't. Yeah, that was one not of my Tiffany's, first. like owned by Tiffany, but Tiffany. <laughs> You know, Lewis Comfort Tiffany. Oh, he was a person? Yes, that person existed. Lewis Comfort Tiffany started in the jewelry business. Mm-hmm. But even stuff like that is strange, too, because I, didn't, I got to know a collector who is into very high-end glass. He has a collection that belongs in a museum, and it's sitting in a bunch of boxes in his house because he refuses to sell any of it. He drove, he drove me insane. <laughs> I go up to the house and try, try to convince him to sell a piece. Like, just let's try this one. We'll just try one piece. All right, but I got to get exactly this much for it. I said, well, you're about three times what anybody's going to pay for it. So I don't know what what you want me to do for you. But you get to talking to him about the history of his collecting, and he just had a really good eye. He wasn't a professional dealer or anything. I think he was in plumbing, actually. He just had an excellent eye, and he knew how to buy things. And when you get to that level of collecting, you start to realize there's like six people involved in really that market at the highest level. And he would tell stories. He says, you'd buy a Tiffany lamp, a legitimate Tiffany lamp, and you'd take it, and these guys would go, well, we don't really like the colors in this lamp. We'll make it look better. We'll replace the lamp, lamp this, and we'll do that to it. And and they would do this stuff all the time. And then they would go to another auction house. And, and I was to say to him, so you're telling me all the stuff that they tell you is original, and it's this, and don't mess with it. It's like, you guys were taking glass out of the stuff and changing it? And said, yeah, that's what, you know, to make it look better, to make it what the collectors wanted, to you know... I think that I think that interest has has changed. I think there yeah. was certainly a time when that was done, absolutely. But I think that that has uh, hopefully lessened. Yeah, <laughs> weird crap like that had happened all the time. Art's a funny one if you want to talk about art. Since of it's course a, I do. An art podcast. A lot of these painters that start out. Well, I'm you know every painter now starts out as a nobody. You know. Um, I resent that, but go on. <laughs> Well, you might have a collect, you know, you might have collectors or patrons in your lifetime and you might do very well. But to reach then the highest levels of, you know, where some of these paintings trade at now, there's a whole process that's involved. And it usually starts with somebody buying up a whole bunch of your work. And we were involved on a very beginner level with a, a painter 
his stuff is just starting to come out a little bit more. His name is Frederick Caroli, and he was a contemporary of Pollock, Rothko, and I think I think he was friends with Picasso, or they knew each other somehow. The history on him is kind of sparse, but he was an abstract expressionist to that whole postmodern movement, and his stuff wound up, I think, in a storage unit in New Jersey. And somebody I knew bought a whole bunch of them when they sold out the, the storage unit. And I'd go to see him once in a while to get stuff for auction. And he'd always point to these gigantic paintings in the corner. He goes, you want to sell those? I go, yeah, we'll look at them next time. <laughs> so, I kept, so finally I said, all right, let's try some of these paintings and see see what we can do to them, with them. So we put them up in a sale. We immediately get a call from Russia. And this gentleman from, from Russia was like, I want, I want to buy all these paintings. <laughs> I was like, all right, just put your bid in. He wound up buying them. It was three paintings. It wasn't a lot of money. I think it was a thousand or two a piece for these paintings, larger works. Because the guy's pretty much a nobody, the painter. The original seller says to us, well, you want to sell a couple more? He says, all right, let's put them up. But the Russian guy buys them again. And then we, you know, we get to talking to him then because you know he's calling fairly regularly because we got to get him to Moscow or wherever he was. And he says, basically, he was buying all of them. Anyone he could find, he was buying a Corolla. He was having them cleaned up, restretched, whatever they needed to be, and then shipping them to, to Russia where he's going to probably exhibit them or have a gallery and slowly let them out to market. And as each one gets let out, they'll try to get the prices up more and more. And that's how a lot of this stuff goes from you've never heard of them before to suddenly, you know, in a decade, the prices have quadrupled, have gone 10 times because it's this just this slow leak of, oh, this one went for this much. You should check out this artist. And then the next one does a little bit more. And it has to do a little bit more because if it goes up next and then the prices go down, nobody wants to touch it. I mean, that whole scenario, I mean, it's fascinating in and of itself, but they, there's there's a whole set of other sort of auction-y things that just make the whole system. Because there's a difference between auctioning an artist who's passed away and also, and now in Europe, which I didn't even know existed until just recently, like there are auctions of artists, living artists on the secondary market. Like, I didn't even know that was an option. I sort of just, in my mind, I was like, auctions are only for dead artists. <laughs> well, uh, they sold... The I don't know. I think the records changed now, but at one time the record for a, the highest price for a living artist was Lucian Freud. It keeps going back and forth between Lucian Freud and uh, Hockney. Freud goes back and forth. Freud's dead now, so he can't. He can't hold that. He's title. out of the running. He's yeah, out, of, he's the out running. of the running now. But, but he it, sold. I, that, I remember it yeah. going back and forth between Hockney and, and Freud for a while. There. They had a piece up. It's got to be at least seven years ago now. It was, I can't remember the name of the painting. It was the it one. It was the, the triptych. No, it was the one with the, the lady asleep on the sofa. It was a very large work, Lucian Freud. And it sold for 35 million. And Freud was still alive at the time. And I don't think he got a dime of that. And I think about a week later, he died. <laughs> well, and, and that's something, that's a topic I wanted to ask you about, because like there are some places in the world, Europe right now, and even California has now started doing it, where they're doing this sort of royalties that need to be paid back to either living artists, or if there's an estate, they also have to give a royalty back. Like, wh why is that not a law? <laughs> like that, to me, that should be obviously done. 
I think it's definitely a, a good way to think of it now. Not to throw this into the conversation, but I'm going to anyway. You know, I, I'm a painter myself, and I have collectors, and I've sold work. I've sold some of my own work at auction. And so now you understand our side of it. I get both sides of it. You know, to sell a piece to somebody, you know, as a as a take it from a strictly business end of it. If, if you treat the artwork just like a product, I sell you this product. I sell you a car, and then you go and sell the car and make more money. Well, it doesn't matter. I sold you the car. You bought it. You paid me what I wanted. If you make a profit on it, you make a profit on it. So if you look at a painting that way, the artist put it out, it's his product or her product, and they got what they wanted for it. And if you make a profit on it, you know, you make a profit on it. As an artist, you look at it and go, well, it's still my image and there's only one of them and it's came from my brain. Shouldn't I get something for it because you made more money on me, on my work? Well, technically they should because, and I mean, because I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, okay, but if somebody buys a BMW from, from BMW mm-hmm. and then they sell that BMW, they don't give any money back to BMW when Correct. they resell it. So like, I get the idea of like products. So like just product, but when it comes to a piece of art, the intellectual property at the, and the sort of rights of reproduction and basically the ownership of the image itself is still with the artist, even though a person may own the painting of it or the sculpture of it or whatever. It's the sort of the rights of it are still under the either artist, living artist or their estate, if there is one. And so if one of those two things exist, they should be giving some money back to them simply because of the rights element. Yeah. And I I think if it's thought of more in a, 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 uh, like a photography sense, product photographer or any kind of photographer can sell a print but just because you bought the print or even bought usage rights for that print doesn't mean you can now just go do whatever you want with it. It's still the photographer's work unless they sold those rights to you, which I think is the way, you know, an artist should be treated. An artist isn't selling you the the right to do. And the, and they don't have that right. Like if you buy a, a painting from a living painter, you can't just go out and make prints now and sell the prints. Correct. You know, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't mean it doesn't happen same thing yeah, would have I, I don't i don't keep up with the laws but yeah. i'm pretty sure you're right that that is, is yeah. illegal i i, I it uh, should be illegal how about that <laughs> when wyeth was still alive i'm pretty sure when he sold his work he would negotiate about who had the rights to make the prints and things like that i don't think when you bought a wyeth you could just do what you wanted with it well, it was his wife, I believe, was a pretty savvy business person. And they were very careful about the work, especially since it's so hard to make a living as an artist. You know, I, I think something should go back, especially if you want them to keep creating. If you're a collector and you're spending that kind of money at auction, you want them to make more work. You know, you want them. Or maybe you don't, <laughs> because then your piece will become more valuable. I mean, there are all kinds of cunning plans well, that, in there. That is the thing that happens. People ask, well, how come an artist's work is worth so much after their death? Is because they can't make any more. That's right. That's it. That, that, that whatever's out there now is out there. But yeah, I mean, this whole issue of royalties, though, like I love that. I mean, the only places I know that it's it's been put in places in the EU and in California, there's this that I think it's great. I had no idea about it prior to starting doing this podcast. And now I'm reasonably well informed about it. And I'm, I'm very pleasantly surprised that 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 is is happening. I'm sad to hear it didn't exist before, but I'm hoping that it starts happening more in more places. I know the auction houses are not thrilled about it. 
I don't fucking care. <laughs> well, just speaking I, from someone inside the in, that was inside the industry, I am not here to benefit the auction houses. It's just it's to them. It's you know, oh well, it's another fee. You know, it's the cost of doing business. You, you, there's a cost to every transaction. You know, so you got to just look at it, and it's not going to stop them from selling the work. You know, especially the big three. The way they manipulate the market, they claim they're not a monopoly, but there's nowhere else to go with work of a certain value or an antique of a certain value. You know, you're going to Chrissy's, you're going to Sotheby's and Phillips is trying real hard and they're, they're getting there and they've worked very hard to keep that status. And that's why they don't charge a lot of the sellers a commission because they want stuff coming through them. They don't want to have to compete with anybody else. I, I feel like though, this is like price fixing and manipulation. I mean, these are all the kinds of things that like, you know, large corporations have regulations on them. So it sounds to me like the art auction industry has little to no regulatory oversight. They do and they don't. I mean, like in Pennsylvania, there is a board of auctioneers that you you, you fall under their jurisdiction and there's lots, you know, any law that applies to any other business applies to you. Well, but then price fixing is against the law. Price fixing is against the law, and they and they don't overtly fix prices, so it's it's hard. They to, just they they caress, they yeah. they they manipulate, <laughs> but they don't fix. They yeah, they do things like you know hold items back. It's you well, know, but that a, should be illegal. Like I mean, because like picture this, like so. Let's say back with the Beanie Babies. I'm coming, pulling all the ridiculous <laughs> things out. But like, imagine if they said, "Oh, well, there are only a hundred of these Beanie Babies." But then slowly, a year later, they pulled out another fifty and then another fifty. It would have ruined the market, kind of thing. So like, literally, that's the definition of price fixing, right? <laughs> but it's I I think it gets into a gray area because again, it's not an overt action where is if you just say we're just not going to put it up on market right now because we're going to either wait for the market to improve or we feel if we have too many of these out there it's going to hurt the price that's, no, that second statement yeah. that's the price fix yeah but if we put to it, the, we have these objects that are available for sale but we're not going to make them available because it will make it so they're less valuable that is literally the definition of price fixing in my mind keeping in mind i'm not a professional lawyer yeah <laughs> price fixing is a little bit more like and I believe they did get in trouble for this once. I think they were doing it with commissions. I, I might be wrong, so I'm going to say this is this is my opinion right now. <laughs> but I'm, I'm almost positive this was a, a thing that happened where two of the big auction companies were calling each other and say, hey, so-and-so has this for sale. This is the commission we quoted them. Make sure you're not less than us. I remember this coming out. Yeah. Yes. They got in a lot of trouble for that because that was just overt price fixing. I mean, that was just, that was criminal. Right, but, but like basically, like it, it goes down to like the, the the interpersonal relationships of like I didn't lie to you, honey, and it's like no, no, you <laughs> lied through omission is what right. you did, like that. So basically, the arts and the auction industry feels like basically a huge lie of omission because we're going to say here's this amazing Basquiat, ninety eight million dollars is the asking price, only one on the market, you know, and then like six months later. Here's another Basquiat <laughs> asking price, $110 million, only one on the market. Like, and then with full knowledge, they have a warehouse full of uh, them yeah. that they're going to like dole out every six months to a year. And that's, that's a lot of how, especially up and coming artists are handled. Uh, the Pennsylvania Impressionists, I don't know if you're familiar with them. I am not. Please educate it's me. A group of artists from the first half of the 20th century 
that were all, uh, some of them were trained in Europe and they were the American Impressionist style. Very, very good painters. Um, some of my favorites. And they were relatively unknown on a national and international level about 20, 30 years ago. There's a place down in Lambertville, New Jersey, that has most of them or a good collection of them. And a lot of them have come through there and he has slowly put them into auctions and into collector's hands and the prices have built and built and built and built. You know, um, George Sauter, who is one of the best painters among that whole group from Bucks County, absolutely phenomenal landscape painter. One of the best nightscapes I've ever, painter painters I've ever seen. His prices went in a course of about a decade. You could have picked up a Sauter for, I think, around 60,000, and now he's well over a quarter of a million, you know, through this sort of slow process of, and you know, a lot of it is an investment on the dealer's part where they're putting a lot of money into these paintings and, and, and they're taking the time to get it to market. But it's not this, oh, I have the paintings here. We'll just put one here. We'll put one here. Whatever they bring, they bring. It's go to the auction house. I have these paintings. This is what I want for them as far as a reserve. Put them in and, and they they slowly edge the price up. And edge, and as they get more interest in the in the artwork, which is generally driven by the attention they get for the amount of money they bring in an auction. The interest goes up. Now you can get into the hands of more collectors. You, you start creating demand. It's a process. And it's it's manipulated to an extent because you could have a warehouse full of them and could sell them all tomorrow and just be done with it. But I'm going to put three out this year. I'm going to put six out in the next quarter. Well, they would even do it too. Though they'd be like, "I'll put three in London, and I'll put two in in Hong Kong." Yeah, and, you know, and so like, it's not even just manipulating how many, but how many where yeah. were they available? Because like, you know, they could either intentionally put it where there are a lot of collectors, or intentionally where there are not a lot of collectors to try and draw attention to maybe something else they put in the auction that maybe would be so. Yeah, it it it, it saddens me. I mean, I'm a you know, I'm my background is like fine artist. I'm a purist. I believe in merit and quality and craftsmanship. Sort of as soon as it leaves my studio, it becomes a commodity that is just bought, sold, and traded on the nature of it being a widget and and how much is somebody willing to pay for that widget well and i've seen it as an auctioneer where i've I've come across work that's beautiful you know old stuff living artist work but because nobody has any idea who it is it's either not going to bring that much money or i couldn't sell it at all we had a little piece once just as an example i'll give you two contrasting examples a sale we did it was a one of our better sales we had just a beautiful little painting small, maybe eight by 10, something like that. Not a very big piece of a 19th century luminist work. Beautiful landscape. I mean, as very well done, the person was obviously well-trained, excellent piece. Unsigned. I couldn't attribute it to anybody. It was kind of a generic sort of European scene, uh, you know, cottage on a river type of look. I think maybe maybe about a thousand dollars or something. There was no way to attribute it to anyone, any school. It was just very nice painting. We get another painting in on a different sale, again about the same size, but it said Innis on it, as in George Innis. Now we did not make any claims about it being it's definitely one of his or we can attribute it to anything and it looked like an innis we took pictures of it showed everybody what it was it was properly stretched for the period in the in a period frame and it said in red innis 
anybody could have painted that signature and I had no way of proving the provenance. Well, that paint, Correct. That painting brought about $4,500, I think, on the gamble that they were going to be able to prove that it was a George Ennis. That's what art is in the market. It has to be something the next person can make money on or they don't really want to hear about it. Now, there's been a lot of collectors over the years that have good eyes and the ability to create a collection, either a cohesive collection of artists because they can see the potential in them and then wind up making money years down the road because whoever they collected caught on and they were able to cash in on their good taste later in life. And then there's people who collect things that never really go anywhere. You know, they and they might have beautiful collections. They might have stunning works of art that they picked up or or a lot of very interesting things or historical things, but they're just not all that valuable because nobody cares because nobody looks at it and goes, oh, I, I would like a, that piece because then when I put it in my collection, it's going to increase the value of my collection. Everybody's worried about increasing the value of their collection. You know, I've met very few pure collectors that collected because the piece may not be worth money, but had historical significance, was part of whatever it was they were collecting, military or, you know, art, books, trains, coins. They just needed that piece to fit into their collection. To me, those are always the most interesting collections because they don't care about the value. They care about what it is, how it fits into the collection, how it fits in historically, and they can tell a story with their collection. It's really interesting. But the reality is a lot of people collect because to them it's an investment, you know, and most of those people wind up getting burned in the end. And again, that, that just saddens me across yeah. the board. But more so it saddens me. The part that saddens me is really just the, the fact that like people go into buying arts as a way to make money and they don't give a shit about the work so like chances are most of the people who buy works at auctions are probably never going to hang it in their homes no they're just going to put it in storage or whatever and then they're just going to wait until the market swings their way and then resell it and that i mean the point of a piece of art is to be experienced and enjoyed and be you know in the home or wherever institution whatever i mean fuck i don't even want to start on museums and how many pieces of art they have in storage versus on display but fuck that annoyed me right before the pandemic hit full force in new york city i was there at the moma i wanted to see a soutine i was looking for a soutine that they had that i really wanted to see it because soutine's such a weird artist and i wanted to get a close look at this painting it was in storage it's like almost everything i wanted to see that day was in storage i think the rothko's were all in storage and i was like what what are you doing <laughs> The Museum of Modern Art. That's the only reason I even wanted to be in here is to see those couple of pieces. And and it's weird how they do that. Uh, don't get me wrong. Most of those large institutions, the MoMA, Met, the, you know, Tate, all these kind of places, if they have something in their collection and you want to see it and you make prior arrangements, they can coordinate to have it available yeah. for you. Be, you know, they are very good about that. I don't want to discourage anybody with that they will give you access like i grew up at the smithsonian in washington dc which is an incredible and, museum oh it's amazing and i could just well and they have a fuck ton of stuff in storage but <laughs> that i could literally just like call up and be like i mean this is 
pre-internet. So I could call up and be like, hi there, I'd like to look at this Edward Munch print. Can you have it available for me at 9 a.m. on Monday? And they were like, sure, no problem. Just ask for so-and-so. And like, I would just walk in, no visitors badges, no, no crazy 80s security stuff. I'd just wander in. I could have been anybody, but it was great. I mean, they have the, that is a great luxury that we have having these institutions and having them in, in the, these collections and available to us upon request. But fuck, why do they store them? So, I mean, they store so much. I mean, did you hear Malcolm Gladwell's whole thing about this? No, I didn't. He did, he has his podcast, which I love. Thank you, Malcolm Gladwell, for creating it, called Revisionist History. He's the author, he right? The, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the Turning Point and all those. And a New York Times writer, I think, or New, New Yorker. Oh, shit. <laughs> I think New York. New Yorker. But he had this podcast where he went in and was like, why do museums have like 90 to 95% of their collection not on display and tried to find out why that is? And it's basically just old colonial position of like, we simply need to own these things. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also about getting people through the door. You know, what can they put on display that will make people come through the door? Because they're unfortunate. No, 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 no. Most of those things, they just basically, they, they want to own it so that nobody else owns it. That's it. Like, I can see that. They, yeah. And these are things they never intend to have on display, but they just don't want anybody else to have it. It's strange. Like uh, that just happened with that supposed Da Vinci they sold. <laughs> that whole thing made me crazy, especially as an auctioneer. I love that story because I was living in the United Arab Emirates yeah. when that got bought. And I, and we were all like, ooh, let's get on the yacht and see if we can find the Salvador Mundi. <laughs> but the whole thing around it, and, and this is something that I thought, you know, as part of the industry, kind of made me crazy was, I forget who the, the auction house was, and I should know, but they go, it's a Da Vinci. And such and such an expert, you know, says it's a Da Vinci. Well, it turns out that that expert went, no, I never, I never, never said that. I looked at it. And said that um, of the style. Yeah. And they somehow manipulated that into being, oh, it's a Da Vinci. And because when I saw the the headlines about it, it was Da Vinci. What Da Vinci is for sale? There's like six. Like, where is this Da Vinci coming from? I'd been familiar with the painting, but I never knew that anybody even had thought that it was definitely one of his. And they sold it as a Da Vinci. And they never backed down from their stance on that. Would they get $450 million for it? Yeah. And then the, the gentleman bought it. And six months later, they were like, where is it? Where did it go? <laughs> and the guy's like, I, it's on a boat. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's the last story I heard. But I also heard he was supposed to be gifting it to the Abu Dhabi Louvre at some point. Abu Dhabi Louvre. It's just the whole thing. Is it Louvre, Abu Dhabi or Abu Dhabi Louvre? I'm not sure. I have no idea. <laughs> I, it's, it's Louvre, Abu Dhabi. They're actually, buying that. That whole area is just, they're buying up a ton of paintings. Qatar bought those two, not, were they Cezanne's? Or was one a Cezanne and one a, it was $250 million. It was the most money paid for that genre of painting. It was the absinthe drinkers, I think was one of them. I can't remember the other painting. Well, I mean, but that whole thing of like the Middle East buying up a bunch of art, it goes back to exactly what I just said about the museums in America, mm-hmm. about they just basically want to own it so that nobody else owns it. Because yeah. they're like, we have the money. And at this point, they now have the Louvre Abu Dhabi, so they can have legitimately, you know, store it and keep it and manage it. So they're like, well, then we should fucking own it. And it, but it, it limits the market in a weird way, because first of all, when, again, once you're at those kind of prices, there's a limited amount of people that have that can write those checks. 
Not in the Middle East, but well, okay. they're the yeah. I mean, and that's why a lot of it's going out there because they have that money and they have it. If they're not borrowing, they're not pretending. They have the money. And then you run into the next problem where we can't just you know chuck it in a storage unit or you know hang it in your living room over the fireplace. You know, most of these works need to be in climate controlled spaces or in a way that they're not going to get damaged. So that also limits who's going to buy them. And to me, that end of the art market is completely outside of the average collector. And yet it's what we see in the news most often. Because it's fantastic. You know, it, it's the the high price. Like, oh, they paid, you know, millions and millions of dollars for these, especially when it's postmodern or abstract expressionism, which the general public has a hard time with. And then you go, well, it sold for $150 million. And you look at Franz Klein and you go, it's just some black streaks. <laughs> you know? and, and it's like, yes, done by Franz Klein. Yeah, but it's Franz Klein, which I should, bringing his name up to jump to another subject. I know where there's a mural in a bar room he drank at that is stuck to the wall. It's absolutely amazing, but it's stuck to us, a masonry wall. People who have it want to sell it, but I have no idea how to get it out of there. Take the whole wall, just like a Banksy. We tried to negotiate with them about having it removed from the wall, and they didn't want to hear. They were worried about the structure of the building and this, that, and the other thing. is the guys, you're making this, com- you're making this complicated, you know? <laughs> Yeah, but for the amount of money, you can easily rebuild that wall that you're going to get for a one of a kind. It's a gigantic mural, too. The story we got is he used to drink there all the time. He had no money for booze. So he said, look, I'll paint a mural on your wall if you just let me drink. It's beautiful. It's one of his uh, expressionist-style uh, landscapes of the, the surrounding town that the bar was in. And it's it's absolutely stunning. Yeah, they were very difficult to, to even talk to. But that's the stuff people see. To go back to my initial point. And it's, you know, it gets clicks in all of these articles and gets, you know, nobody sells a newspaper anymore, so I can't say that. And it only perpetuates this nonsense about, oh, buy art because you're going to make money on it later in life. And it's like, that's not, that was never the purpose. You know, it's great from the business side of it as an auctioneer, you know, but it's also nerve wracking too when you see something that should be of value, that is quality, that is a fantastic work of art, be it glass or sculpture or, or a painting, and you should be able to market it and you put it out onto the market and you put it into an auction with other stuff of the same caliber and people go, what is this? Is it signed? Who'd made it? Oh, I don't, it's a nobody. I don't want, I, I can't do anything with that. And it would happen all the time, you know? Yeah. So artists that are listening, sign your works. <laughs> and then become My somebody. <laughs> well, but just even sign it for fuck's yeah. sake. Never put a piece of art out that's not signed because they will never be able to be attributed for 100% to you in, in your life nor your death. So, that, I mean, what also would be helpful as speaking from an antique dealer auctioneer is you can have your strange signature on the front of the piece, sign it on the back somewhere in block letters so you can make out what your name spells. I don't know how many times it took me a week to figure out a signature because I just wasn't either familiar with the work or had never seen a piece. And it was this weird squiggle. And you know, I don't know what that is. So now I'm going to have to ask a lot of questions. Okay. Well, that brings up a whole topic that I'm fascinated with personally, which is certificates of authenticity and provenance. Oh, okay. So 
like okay here i'll give you my sort of perspective on it. i do i am obsessive about okay so i'm a photographer and i do fine art prints that i sell in editions and all this and i create certificates of authenticities where I, I i fill out like all the information on it like what ink what paper what printer what i mean it's much technical materiality kind of information as i can mostly i do that because i believe that someday that there'll be a conservator who will need to repair my works because i am that egotistical <laughs> and so so i do all that and then i have a, then I sign the, the the certificate of authenticity, and I have a I have matching hologram numbered stickers that I put on the certificate, and then and they're tamper proof, and I also put it on the back <laughs> of the print, yeah. uh, so they have matching. And then I sign the print also, and I do all of it in pencil because I know that that is the best because ink will fade over time. Ink can fade; it takes a long time to fade, you know, especially India ink or uh, some of the older stuff. That's a great thing to do for your prints. Since you make prints, that's what you make as an artist. As in the secondary market, that's what people will be expecting. The problem with some of that, we had tried to sell for someone a um, two Chagall serographs that were signed by Chagall, supposedly. And this is, it, it's just when the print market tanked couldn't get anybody to even look at them and we even called around tried to broker a deal to another gallery for them and then this that and the other thing and it's like no we don't nobody wants them no because prints from a, a painter or prints from any other type of fine artist the photographers are the only ones that seem to be exempt from this because that's the nature of the medium is you're wasting your money on the print market like you got a, a warhol silkscreen that's different that's he was that's what he was doing you know, but we had we had like a was it a Jasper Johns or who is his partner's name? I don't know. I can't remember. I think it might have been. A, we'll just go with Jasper. We'll Johns. go with just Jasper. Go Johns. With Jasper it, was, it was a print, and it was a signed print. Nobody's going to fact check this, <laughs> so it's okay. Go ahead. <laughs> That's probably a good thing. And it was a, it was a print of an edition that they were he was involved in making, signed by him, and all that good stuff. I couldn't, and some of my best art customers, I couldn't even get them to look at it. It's like they wanted nothing to do with it. I find that fascinating because I'm a works on paper person. I like works on paper, quite honestly, most of the time, more than a painting many times because I'm not sure why, quite honestly, but I do love a good works on probably because they're reasonably affordable and oftentimes they're a little bit more experimental, you know, so maybe they're not like, you know, specifically their style, but it's, you can see it's oftentimes the works on paper are the, the things that artists do when, like when they're transitioning between things, you know, so like they're known for this and they're going to test out the market with these prints and see if they can sort of evolve into this next thing. And so I love seeing that sort of evolutionary period. I am not the standard art collector because I'm actually an artist and have knowledge about right. art and care about art and and love the process of it and all that. I don't see it as a commodity. So I'm not your general buyer. So there, there. It was difficult for me in a lot of times because being from an arts background and being an artist myself and having collectors myself and then trying to sell somebody's art in the auction and antique setting, it sometimes make me absolutely insane because it's like, there's no reason you shouldn't want this piece just because it's not by a well-known artist or it's from an artist that's known, but it's not the thing he's known for or she's known for. And so therefore its value is less. It's like, I don't, I, I never got that part of it. And 
it's, you know, one of the reasons that drove me to quit eventually is like, I don't get the buying mentality sometimes. It can make you insane. It's like, not only do they think of art as a commodity and only a commodity, but it's got to meet these specific conditions all the time, you know? And if it doesn't meet their specific, whatever, and a lot of it's made up by the collectors. Like if it doesn't meet these specific conditions, they just don't want it. It's like all that stuff Picasso did at the end of his life. You know, a Picasso from his cubist phase is worth millions and millions and millions. That stuff he did later on were all those little drawings of the flowers and, or his, his uh, stoneware. It's like people, I, they don't even want to look at it. They don't want to admit it's a Picasso. They want nothing to do with it. That's, that, quite honestly, that just felt like a money grab. Oh, I absolutely. Mean, really, come on. But that's, that was Picasso. I mean, his whole life was yes. a money grab. <laughs> it was. But like at the point where he actually could grab money, yeah. he was like, fuck yeah, I'll do that stupid stoneware thing for you. Sure. You're going to pay me how much? Absolutely. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I, I respect him as both an artist and a business person, but he does put a bad impression on a lot of people he as well. He does when you really get into his history and, and the way he lived. He, he can leave a bad taste in your mouth. <laughs> oh, yeah. Beside the racist, sexist, all kinds yeah. of other things in his, in his lifetime. But yes, anyways. <laughs> so... Yeah, and then you mentioned provenance too, which is a big thing for collectors. Sometimes the value of a piece lies in just who had it before you have it. It could be the most worthless thing in the world. You know, if somebody put up Michael Jordan's sweatband, you know, that he wore during one of his championship games, people would pay millions for it. It doesn't matter if it was a rag cut off of a, a, a you know, like a bedsheet or something. They wouldn't care what the thing was. It's just the fact that he had it. And so provenance is a big thing in the business. Well, but it's not even just like you're saying like who owned it that way, but it also a lot of people will buy things saying like, oh, this was in such the a, such a collection, collection of the Guggenheim or the collection of the, right. you know, the Rothschilds or whatever. Like if the piece was at one point collected by another prominently known collector, mm-hmm. that is its own little oeuvre and collecting style as well. Yeah. I mean, there's been things that even turned out to be fake that were part of important collections that are still valuable. No, yeah. no. Fake things in the art world? That's shocking. Coins were a big one. I mean, there were forgers of, of uh, coins that were so good that the forgeries themselves became valuable because they were famous for what they forged and, and the fact that they got away with it. It's such a strange part of the business. Like, well, who had it before me? Oh, nobody? Yeah, I don't want it. It's like, oh, the, it was from the, the, it's from the House of Windsor? Oh, sure. It's, it's, it's. Well, I mean, but that's the thing is like, so like, let's say there's like two pieces made by the exact same artist and one has provenance. So it doesn't even matter what the provenance is. It has provenance. Right. So you have paperwork, receipts, certificates of authenticities, whatever. And then another piece done by the exact same artist, let's say same style, same quality, same time period even, and has no provenance it's so much less valuable. Why is provenance like create that value? It can create a sense of legitimacy, especially if it's from a well-known collector or a well-known collection. So it's like, oh, well, it was in that collection. So that means it must be good. No, no collector is 100% right. I mean, that, uh, oh, 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 it was in so-and-so's collection. Oh, bullshit. I've seen some shit art in some really great collections. That, and that's a thing that happened, especially in the antique end of it. There's so much stuff out there that isn't what it's purported to be. And it makes collectors nervous. There's so many fakes, forgeries, almosts. From the workshop of. Yeah, that wind up in circulation. And 
collectors get very nervous because everybody that's been in the business in any serious way has been burned by one of these items where they thought they had it and they could, thought they could prove it. And then it goes into somebody who knows much more than them. And they go, no, that's, that's not real. And you can lose a lot of money, a lot of money. And so people get very nervous, especially, you know, as the price goes up, the nervousness goes up. And so be able to prove where something came from and the further back you can go, the better. It just adds a level of comfort when you're spending that kind of money. And it can work against you in the sense that a collector had sent in a group of illustrations from a couple of artists that were very well known. And when we got them in, we looked them over and there was no reason for them to be fake. They were too insignificant as far as works from their collection to be something that anyone would fake. It would just be a stupid thing to fake. Which is exactly why they were fake. Well, we never were able to prove whether they were fake or not because we sold them and the person who bought them sent them out to get authenticated. And the answer they got back from the, the, the experts, and this is a well-known company that this is what they do. They authenticate this type of stuff. Wasn't that, oh, these are fake. These are definitely fake. Well, you know, you were ripped off. The answer came back was, we will not say yay or nay on these at all. What it really came down to was there's such insignificant pieces from these artists' collections that we don't even want them in the market. It's just going to dilute the market, you know? So, well, that, but that whole thing of like not being willing to actually say, yes, I guarantee that this is by somebody is such a like just scam bullshit thing because it hurts the people's reputations if it ends up being wrong i mean i get all the 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 reasons for it and all this kind of stuff but there should be like a regulatory body you know like they can just say like yes it is i mean like the the warhol foundation kind of they used to or at at one point and i know there's the catalog revues in in paris (laughs) yeah that's your on that one there are these there are these official catalogs of of like Cezanne and Matisse. Oh, oh yeah, when they like refer and, to and, it's in the catalog as yeah 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 yes yes and and so like the and they're the official catalog and if it's not in the catalog then it's not approved and you in the body the group of people who decide what's in the catalog and what's not in the catalog totally behind the curtain yeah. like nobody knows who they are nobody knows why or how they make their decisions and they can just make whatever fucking decision they want so you can take them something that like you have all the provenance in the world that says that this, this is a saison and they could just go no it's not yep and it happens way more often than you would think where at a certain level people like we just it could be and it could come down to something as silly as the person who owns it no one likes <laughs> You know, everybody knows who owns that piece. They can't stand them. They're not going to say it's, it's, they'll wait 25 years after they die and go, oh, you know, we were wrong the whole time. It turned out to be, and that, that happened with another Da Vinci a few decades ago. It was a sketch. It has like a 100 year history or something of people buying it, thinking it was this thing and that thing. And then somebody bought it. I'm sorry, I'm so vague about some of these details because I had so many of these stories in my head. But somebody had purchased this drawing and it's very famous now and it's accepted as a Da Vinci. And they were just very stubborn about it being authenticated as a Da Vinci. And it wound up being sold at an auction as a Da Vinci and it it brought quite a bit of money. I can't remember how the original person who owned it wound up with it, but they had paid like $40 for it or something. And it just sat in a shop and then somebody bought it out of the shop for a pittance and then 
they just over time they got experts to look at it and say, oh, well, it kind of looks like a Da Vinci. And then it was, oh, it really looks like a Da Vinci. And they say, oh, it's a Da Vinci. <laughs> and nobody to this day could still really prove yay or nay because he didn't, it was a sketch. He didn't sign it, you know. And I mean, you could date the paper to his era, I'm sure, but he had a studio. He had people working for him. It could have been a student, it could have been anybody. Yeah. It could have been his lover. It could have been somebody who was extremely competent and copied it from that era. You know, it's it's could have been a corporate espionage <laughs> person that was copying his work and taking it over to a rival studio in his handwriting. It's funny how things like that sort of languish, you know, in the dark forever because nobody can prove it until they decide they can prove it. And then the opposite could happen. Things like I said could be in collections for years, and then somebody pull it out and say, "No, actually, it's not real." And that's happened too. And it's just a weird game. What gets frustrating about it is the value attached to it. When you thought it was a Rembrandt, you know, it was worth all kinds of money. Now that it's proven it wasn't, you suddenly don't want it anymore. So what is it that you're attaching the importance to? Is it just the money? Is it the historical? Is it the fact that he or she touched it? Where does the value come from? Because it's not in the quality of the work. It's got nothing to do with it. Over and over. That's correct. You know, because there was that book that was written by the forger who had been selling work through all of the major auction houses. And he did it for years that he would take mediocre artists that sold well, but weren't anybody important. And he would fake it right down to the last detail. And he would just bring them in and uh, say, I don't know anything about them. You tell me, is it any good? And the auction house, oh, it's such and such. And yeah, we could sell these. And it, you know, and it was stuff that was 50,000, 60,000, 100,000. So in that world, it wasn't a lot of money, but every one of them was fake. Yeah, I know. I've had two forgers on the podcast. I wonder if it was one of the gentlemen I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, David Henty was the one who was very, very good. He was very um, uh, open about his, his practices. This guy wrote a book and... I might be wrong, but I don't think he ever really got in trouble for it. I think he, as a matter of fact, he helped turn in the auction houses that were doing it. No, I think the guy you're talking about is like German or Austrian yeah, I or can't something remember. like that. I, yeah, I know who you're talking about. I can picture, there's a famous picture of him like sitting outside in his garden painting, and I know who you're talking about. can't think of his name, though. But the, oh, And that, then there was the big case with the gentleman that was faking all the high-end postmodern stuff that uh, was being run through all the major auctions. He was faking Rothko's and Pollock's. It was just a few years back. There's a documentary about it on Netflix. I, I can't remember the- I saw it, yeah. It, well, it was, going, it was going through museum or through a, a dealer. gallery. And the dealer was then passing it on. And it was hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars worth of works. And I feel bad for the collectors because, you know, they're being sold a bill of goods. And when you get into that arena, it gets a little tough to tell a fake from a, a, a real one if the forge is really, really good because of the type of work. And the only thing I think they were able, they finally caught them on was the type of paint being used. Like there was a pigment that was used that wasn't even manufactured yet. And that was the only reason they were able to nail them. Which quite honestly, that is like forgery 101 for fuck's sake. Like seriously, like, I mean, of all the stupid shit to get caught for, that is forgery 101. Like I'm even smart enough to know that yeah. you have to get ink, like paints and inks from the time period that, and don't ever use anything that didn't exist in that time period. Come on. Yeah. Or at the very least, you know, make your own pigments. You know, that's still a possibility to make your own pigments from, from the actual minerals. 
Well, that depends on because after the first atomic bomb, that won't that won't work. So yeah. because anything you make now has that atomic radiation in it. That if it was from prior to the first atomic bomb, there was none of that radiation. Is, so yeah, all the new paint fluoresces under black light, and that's actually one Is of that true? yeah, that's one of the techniques we would use to see if a painting was restored. Because sometimes, especially on oil paintings, the varnish would crack the painting, and so they would fill the cracks. And if it was done well by, you know, an actual conservator, it'd be fine. It'd look nice. And usually they'd have a certificate that restored by blah, blah, blah. But if you get some amateur that didn't know what they were doing or they were trying to fake something in the painting or, or, or mess with it, you'd put a black light on it and you could see a lot of the pigments would fluoresce and you'd go, well, this has been messed with, you know, and it could make a big difference in the value of the painting, especially if it was done by some amateur that had no idea what they were doing. Sadly, that is all too often, but yes. Yeah, and that's one of the things that you have to look out for too in the business. And one other reason collectors get nervous is like, it could be the thing you all think it is by the person with provenance. Was it messed with? You know, did somebody mess with it? Okay, you're making it a negative. We'll call it restored poorly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's restored, which everybody could handle that. And then there's messed with. (laughs) It's... It could have been done with the best of intentions. Well, and then there's people who do it for fraudulent reasons. For instance, it's true. the mass-produced items that are rare, which is a sort of an oxymoron, you know, the color of something could have been rare. Like maybe they made a million of whatever in red, and they, for whatever reason, they made 2,000 in blue. You know, either they were prototypes or they just didn't sell well. So the cut production, well, the blue ones are really, really rare. And so they're worth a lot of money. It's nothing to stop somebody from taking one of those red ones and spray painting them blue if if they could do it. And it happened a lot. The watch market's a big one. There's a tremendous amount of value in the types of dials that are on things like a Rolex. The original dial, because Rolex would be, you know, at any point in its history, you could send the watch back. And if there's something wrong, they'd put a new dial on it. Well, a Rolex from the late 50s, you know, or the 60s that has its original dial, even if it's completely messed up and banged around, is worth far more than one that was replaced by the company later on. So you have to watch out for that kind of stuff. So people will fake those sort of things. They'll they'll change the lettering on it. They'll redo the stencils or they'll put a new dial on because the other one was, you know, gone. The watch was in just in that bad of shape and it changes the value. And in that instance, I can see not wanting it as much because you go, well, this is not the thing you said it was. It's like the difference between a restored car and an original car. It's much more special to say, well, this is exactly how it came the day the person bought it. So it's much more interesting because it's kind of like looking back in time. It's a little different than saying, well, it did look like this, but this is a brand new dial or these are brand new hands or like in a car, we put a brand new engine in it. It's a little bit different. I'm not a car guy. I'm just going to believe you on that. <laughs> Cars will make you insane. That, that's a whole, as far as auctions go, that's a whole separate world than the antiques and fine art. They they do things very differently. That they're, they're run a little differently. We never got into that end of it. It's kind of a very close-knit group of people, too. It's hard to break into that as an auctioneer. Oh, yeah, I don't know anything about I can't talk intelligently <laughs> about it at all. But are there any topics that I didn't even ask you about some like you know behind the curtain things people don't say publicly things that i really want you to talk about (laughs) Um, things that nobody else will talk about that you can because you're not in it anymore it's it's a frustrating business it's a lot of nonsense 
a lot of it is manipulation sort of on all levels where it's like everybody's just trying to get the most money. Unfortunately, there's a lot of unscrupulous characters in the business from the dealer end to the buyer end to the, to the seller where people will do whatever they can to get the most out of something. You got to be careful and be educated when you're in the antique and auction business. You got to know what you're looking at, where it came from, who's selling it. Because a lot of stuff just gets circulated from one auction house to the next, from one dealer to the next, and it just stays in perpetual circulation because there's really no end user that wants it. You know, but people have money tied up in this stuff. And when you got money tied up in something, you're going to do what you can to protect your investment, which leads to a lot of strange practices in the, in the business. Such as? <laughs> Such as, you know, like like hoarding things, letting it out a little at a time. Um you know, in the art world, they try to get pieces into the hands of important collectors in order to drive up prices. The, the willingness or, or lack of willingness to authenticate something in certain genres of, of the business. Sports is a big one with signed baseballs and things like that. I think the statistic is like 70% of the balls signed Mickey Mantle are completely and utterly fake. He had everyone sign them for him. I can't tell you how many. P- Again, I watch Pawn Stars. <laughs> so it, and it make you crazy. And from the uninitiated people who are just getting into it or think they're going to make a lot of money with it, most of what you see on TV and in these shows, are just, it's just nonsense. Some of those TV shows, it's not people walking in off the street with just happen to have an item in their, their attic or garage. They call these people. I know the roadshow, or why I've been told by people who've been called by them, go when they go into a town, they call the collectors up and say, can you bring in some piece, you know, something good. So we have, if they went from town to town and hoped they were going to find something good, I mean, there'd be a lot of towns that go in and find absolutely nothing. It, 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 yes. You know, what that doesn't make very good TV. (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't blame them for that. That's, I mean, it's, it's not a guarantee. It's, it's not saying, Hey, come down to our thing. We will be certain to put you on. It's just, please come down just in case we don't find anything interesting. At least we have you as a backup. People who uh, are looking to sell items or think they're going to get into it get a false perception like, you know, like this, these types of items are just falling out of trees. You know, like everybody's going to find something in the attic that's worth 10000 20000 100000 It's like, you know, <laughs> no. I have a low collection. I believe there is something in there worth it. Yes. But we all think that. It's possible, too. But... Hmm. It makes the business very strange. You know, most of what I saw in my career of 16 years, I turned away because it just wasn't anything of any value. Okay. Well, I have a question specifically about something that I've been seeing happen more and more. Now, this it was not around when I was young, so or, or maybe it was and I just didn't know it, was that it seems like a lot of younger living artists are intentionally skipping the galleries and going directly to selling their works in auctions. I don't know if I can comment on that because I didn't really experience that when I had my license. I could see why galleries can be very difficult to deal with. Um, It it seems like it's more prominent in Europe, to be honest. Quite frankly, I always had more success going directly to collectors, as gauche as it might seem. I did put a few of my pieces in my own auction and sell them. I always did very fair with it because if you believe in your work, you're good at what you do. You shouldn't be afraid to put it up on the open market and then let the the collectors dictate what they want to pay. It's a very scary thing to do. 
Yeah, no, okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on that one because I've had like in America, so we should caveat this one. In America, there is this trend of having benefit auctions. Mm-hmm. I fucking hate those things when they ask artists <laughs> to donate a piece to a benefit auction. And then they go up and you say, okay, well, the, the reserve price should be whatever, this, $1,000 for this piece. And they end up selling it for 500 Because to them, just any money is good money because the artist gave the work for free. And so any money is profit for them. They don't care if it actually meets the minimum or the actual retail value of the thing. They just want the money for the benefit. Fucking drives me nuts. How did that get started? And and why do people think that these benefit auctions are like yard sales where they can get everything for the cheapest possible price? Fucking, it, it is so angers me. It can be difficult because sometimes people have the buyers sometimes get this idea that, oh, it's at auction because they just need to get rid of it. And they seem to misunderstand what an auction is supposed to do. You know, you put a bunch of people in a room that want the same things. And now you ask them, well, how much are you willing to spend? Are you willing to spend more than that guy or that woman? And well, then you're going to have to pay more. And But an auction is also designed to move a lot of stuff quickly. If you run a real auction where everything's going to go out the door that day, it shows you what the liquid value of an item is that day. It takes an asset and turns it into cash immediately. And it gives it the best possible chance for the most money because you're doing it in front of a whole bunch of buyers and not just a couple. That's why sometimes, you know, the business gets a little manipulated because you can, because that is what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to take this asset and turn it into cash as quickly as you can do it. Sometimes it doesn't work the way you want it to. <laughs> you know? Sometimes the people standing there going, I don't really want it. I'll buy it, but I'm not going to give you what you want. You know, I'm only going to go so far on it. When you get into the arena where everything is supposed to have a value, you know, everything's, this thing is supposed to be worth that much. So now what do you do? Do you sell it for less and really irritate the buyer or the seller rather? And you'll never get another thing from them again to sell? Or do you annoy the buyer and say, well, yeah, it's up for auction, but we're going to start here or you're not going to get it at all. Well, that's my problem is, is that these these benefit people, the, you know, I mean, they're nonprofits and I get it. I ran a nonprofit. I, I, I understand that side of it, but there should be some fair equity that goes into this because they're basically asking an artist to take a piece that they could sell for $5,000 and donate it for free to this benefit to try and raise money. And then they end up selling the price for below retail price, which then ends up hurting the artist's reputation because then it's like, oh, I could go buy it for retail or I could just wait till they (laughs) donate another one to another auction and I can get it for a below retail price. Like, come on. I mean, there's a couple ways you could look at that, I guess. You could say, this is what your work generally sells for, say the $5,000. You could go to your accountant and then say, well, I donated $5,000 this year. Let's write that off as a business expense. Correct. Yes. And then if it goes for less than that, you could always look at it and go, am I overcharging for my work? <laughs> Would I sell more if I lowered my price? And it's, it's a weird thing I have in my head, you know, where I could see it from both sides. That's not the conversation. You're making it like we as the artists are doing the wrong thing. No, the people doing the wrong thing are these benefit auctions. Like I am to the point where I will not, no matter how much I love the 
non-profit, I will not participate in those unless they set up fair market value as the beginning part. Like, because the point of an, a benefit auction is to benefit. Yeah. Like, so they, people should be spending more money, not trying to like lowball getting this thing. And it sort of drives me nuts. Don't get me wrong. If I go to a benefit auction, of course I want to buy it for below retail <laughs> price, but as the person yeah. <laughs> putting something in the auction, I want to get retail price. And that's the dilemma of every auction house in the world. Because as an auctioneer, you're the agent that has to deal with both sides. You have to deal with the seller, who is your primary financial responsibility because you're representing them. And then you have to have happy buyers. Because if you run an auction where every time somebody comes to your auction, it's very difficult to buy anything and they just get frustrated, they're not coming back. They got to score once in a while, you know, because again, most people attending these auctions on a regular basis are people who resell, you know, it's not all end users. The end user is going to come spend what they feel they're going to spend. If they get it, they get it. They don't, they don't. It's not a living for them. The person who comes to buy the majority of the stuff is the, the reseller and they need to feel that the auction's fair, that, you know, when they're bidding, they're, they're bidding against the real other bidders because it's a whole nother thing we could talk about. You know, and then on the other end, you got to make sure that the seller's happy. You're getting the most you can in the fairest way you can. And you have to constantly balance that. It's like, you know, I know you want top dollar for the item that you have, but you have to be reasonable and think that maybe all the people come and just bought, you know, they have three of them in their collection or the dealers are all stocked up on them and they don't want them anymore or, or they can't push them right now. And, you know, you happen to just put your item up at a bad time or it's not what you think it is or it's worse condition than anyone I've ever seen before. It's one thing I learned as a valuable lesson is managing expectations. It's a constant management of expectations. And sometimes it's hopeless because <laughs> everybody just wants it their way. And sometimes you catch a break and everybody's happy at the end of the day. It's constant management of expectations that's the best way to look at it that is an excellent way to end the episode <laughs> i really appreciate you having me on thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation we would appreciate it if you would share the podcast with your friends family co-workers studio mates anyone with an interest in the arts and creative endeavors the building and strengthening of the arts and creative community is at the core of the mission for this podcast. They can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Mickey at Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. As many of you all know, the arts is often supported by grants, and so we appreciate the support of an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene in Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.